So greetings to all of you here practicing in the Zendo of Great Vow Zen Monastery and to those of you practicing on Zoom. It's an honor to be here with you at this Metta Sashin, to be asked by my teachers to um, be part of it, to sit on this box. <laughs> and um, to uh, lead this particular Sashin. Chosen Roshi, who many of you know, maybe most of you or all of you know, our founder has really supported Metta practice as a core part of the family wind, as they say in Zen, the sort of particular mix of practice expression here in our community. And so we've been doing Metta Sashin for over 20 years. And Metta is not a, a Zen practice in the sort of particulars of the tradition. Of course, it's part of the Buddha Dharma. And so in that way, it's Zen. But just in the particularities of how Buddhism grew up, how Zen grew up, um, it was not so emphasized, at least in an explicit way. And Chosen was actually criticized for doing a session that had loving kindness. Um, and among sort of North American Zen purists, I suppose, but those days are long ago. And uh, we've all matured and seeing how important this practice is, she saw metta practice as an important uh, part of uh, that Zen can become too cool on the wisdom side and needs the balance, warmth of heart practice, particularly loving kindness. So here we are. 20 plus years later, continuing this tradition of gathering together and uh, exploring the contours of the human heart and the universal heart, because those are not two. So this is the second day of, second full day of Sashin. And we've set aside our ordinary way of being and relating to the world so that we can engage in wholehearted practice, hearted, wholehearted practice. There are bells that call us as the schedule flows from one thing to the next. And we have the opportunity to gradually practice in a more continuous way, not just in the Zendo. And this is true whether you're practicing here at Great Vow or practicing on Zoom. There is, the, there is the schedule, there is the structure, the container that allows us to drop what's extra and not important. So as we've been sitting a long time doing the practice, we notice the activity of our thinking mind. We notice the 
how the mind sometimes plans for imagined futures, worries, anxiety, ruminating, am I good enough? Worried, what do people think of me? Anxiety, am I doing it right? We notice the mind engaging in judgment of self and others or blame. Ruminating on the past, regrets and resentments. All these things can bubble up. In some cases they're, not in some cases, a lot of the time those are there and we either don't notice or distract ourselves or have other kinds of strategies. These are all strategies of the mind, habits of the mind. So it's important at the beginning, especially at the beginning of Sashin, it is important to keep your practice simple. Because the mind is going to, to produce, it does produce, it thinks. <laughs> And what it thinks are, um, uh, we see the habits that, for whatever reason, have been cultivated, encouraged. So it's important to keep your practice simple, feeling the breath, experiencing the body in contact with your seat, receiving the sounds, over and over again, returning to the direct experience, not the thoughts about the experience or the mind's evaluation of the experience, Was that a good breath? Oh, I was really able to do it that time. Follow that breath. Oh, I didn't do it that well at that time. That's not the direct experience. That is um, the inner narrator, the commenter, the peanut gallery. It's like those two, it's like Statler and Waldorf on the Muppet Show, sitting in the balcony, commenting. I'm dating myself with that reference, I'm sure. <laughs> simple, 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 simple. Feeling the warmth and coolness of the breath, the coolness of the in-breath, the warmth of the out-breath. It's just that simple, not easy, simple. The mind wants to complicate it, turn it into a project, evaluate, have opinions, wonder about it. That's not the experience. That's separation. And the thinking mind is fine. We can do all sorts of wonderful things with a thinking mind. But the thinking mind also with its habits is suffering. So over and over again, returning to the direct experience, that's the practice. Feeling the warmth and coolness of the in-breath and out-breath. 
coolness, warmth, the gentle movement of the chest, side and back. Or saying the phrases as the breath moves in and out like ocean waves. We can anchor our attention to the, on the breath with the phrases in a way that's unadorned and uncomplicated. Our stance is alert yet relaxed. We're practicing simplicity. And when the mind begins to cling, when it begins to practice distraction, we gently bring it back to the simplicity of our practice. Over and over again, returning to your practice. And by simple, it's clear. It's important to resist from going to app to app, especially for those of us who know a lot of different kinds of meditation practices, it's really important to pick one and stick with it, at least for that, at least for the period. It is very difficult to establish concentration or samadhi when we're switching up our practices. I mean, this is basically just the novelty-seeking mind, which we all experience. So start out following the so. The way it goes is start off, I'm following the breath. And then, well, I don't know that I'm following it that well. Maybe I should do a body scan. So I'll start to do a body scan. And I kind of lost track where I was. So maybe, maybe I'll go back to the, body, the breath again. And what was that practice that I learned from Lama Lekshe? Maybe I'll do that one. That's just like going through and like, hmm, how about this one? So this is very common. One of the five hindrances to meditation is restlessness. The Buddha talked about it 2,500 years ago. You have a mind like other human beings. If this happens, all meditators will experience phases of this. So it's nothing to worry about. It's quite natural but it does require some determination when it arises. So, or when the mind gets caught clinging to judgment or ruminating, we may need to respond. We just need to be on the lookout for the mind that is a tour guide and wants to talk about your practice rather than do the practice. And what is talking anyway? And who are they talking to? So be clear about your simple practice, clear about what you're doing. And when you sit down, be clear what your practice is. Decide on your practice and stick with it for the whole period. There have been many times I've sat down and the bell rings and it feels like it's like five or 10 minutes later and it's like, oh yeah, what am I doing? What's my practice? When I haven't even really started meditating yet. So decide on your practice and stick with it the whole period. 
it helps to just say, I'm going to follow the breath in the nose and notice that experience. And when my mind is distracted, I will come back to that. The end. <laughs> and then you don't have to, then your tour guide doesn't need to take you to all the various, um, uh, take you on a journey. Just come back to it. It's simple. Maybe the cue for this, it helps to have a cue. Maybe the cue is the timekeeper offering incense. That could be your cue when the timekeeper offers incense or comes up and bows here. Here is my offering, because they're making an offering of generosity on behalf of all of us. They offer incense. So here is my offering to myself and others. My practice is get in the habit of knowing where you will come back to to shine your attention. This is how we establish samadhi, concentration, calm abiding. Now, this is not to say that we may find our practice may find our practice opening up. So we may start with a breath in the nostril, and then pretty soon we notice that we are feeling the body breathing. That's practice. We're not, you know, we're not machines. Um, that's different from. Um, the mind kind of f f channel surfing, trying to strategize. The practice opening up is one thing. How do we know the difference? We just have to have experience and look. Just notice. So please keep it simple. Know where you're going to bring your attention when you find the mind practicing suffering. So as we practice our simple practice of breath, of body, of sound, of just sitting present, one of the ways that we can keep it simple and straightforward is by having this position, this stance of welcome, of welcoming whatever comes. Here is a poem about welcome by Rumi. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all even if they are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. He may be cleaning you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they are a crowd of sorrows, 
who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. She may be cleaning, clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So welcoming whatever comes, a joy, a depression, a dullness, a restlessness, a bliss, a quiet silence. Welcome them all. This kind of welcome, this kind of welcome brings a kind of quiet, silent, calm. When we're evaluating our practice, that's a kind of unwelcomeness. That's practicing dissatisfaction, resistance, It's about, so metta, loving kindness, isn't about painting over our experience. I don't like this, so I'm going to do metta to cover it up. No, I am doing metta to interrupt the mind that gets caught in liking and disliking, picking and choosing. I'm doing metta to turn the mind away from its habit of disowning parts of myself, of not liking that, of wanting to fix this, fix this. So we practice welcome, we practice metta as a way to interrupt that deeply ingrained habit. And this picking and choosing is what the mind falls into. As we chant at lunch, the great way is not difficult for those who do not pick and choose. When preferences are cast aside, the way stands clear and undisguised. But even slight distinctions made set earth and heaven far apart. If you would clearly see the truth, discard opinions pro and con. To founder in dislike and like is nothing but the mind's disease. And not to see the way's deep truth disturbs the mind's essential peace. So this attitude towards welcome is interrupting this process in both uh, gross and also subtle ways of this kind of picking and choosing that disturbs the mind. 
that causes suffering, that causes us divide, to divide ourselves off from others and within. Don't worry uh, if this is the case. This, is, this uh, chant has been chanted for in Zen circles for over a thousand years. So this picking and choosing mind um, has, has a lot of history. So preferences are cast aside. This isn't about, do I want to put soy sauce on my cereal or not? It's not that kind of picking and choosing. This is the kind of, and, and in a way it's like, there is a kind of piece where it's like, if there's soy sauce, great. If there's not soy sauce, there's great. If there's peanut butter, it's great. If there's not peanut butter, it's great. We can like, we can still like peanut butter or not like peanut butter. But this is really points to the ways in which we cut off ourselves and others. So we practice metta, come together to practice metta. So what is it? What is metta? Well, put simply, metta is love. Metta is love. But what kind of love? It's this kind of love, as it says in the Metta Sutta, wishing in gladness and in safety May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, none, none are outside. The greater the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be. Whether they are weak or strong, none are outside. The great, the mighty, medium, short, small, seen and unseen, near and far, born and yet to be born, may all beings be at ease. Metta is unconditional love, love without conditions, love with no agenda. Do I deserve it or not? Do I deserve love? In the light of Metta, it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. The question is irrelevant. Do you deserve love? It's, that's an irrelevant question in light of metta. Because it's placing a condition. 
Do you agree with me? Irrelevant. Did you do what I want? It's irrelevant. It's wishing well regardless of living beings and what they do and what they say. Do they talk like a raven? Do they make the sound like the trees? Metta is unconditional love. Unconditional love and unconditioned love. So this is not about being a doormat or accepting abuse. And of course, both abuse and abused and abuser bear enormous karmic consequences when we treat people poorly or, um, or are treated poorly. So leaving a situation where harm is happening, of course, is vital. May you be at ease, and I'm leaving this situation for both of us. And of course, we need to set limits with people. We can love and be discerning. Parents do this all the time. I love you, and you can't eat cake for breakfast. I love you, and you have a curfew. Um, so of course we need to set limits. And that limit for a parent is, that is love. Because it helps that child. So sometimes it's best for us to practice metta for someone from a long way away. Yeah, there are some, some people we are acquainted with that it's best that we love them from via email or just in our heart. But when they show up, we can be kind. And we do that for our own sake. We do that for our own sake. This practicing of metta, this unconditional positive regard, this may you be at ease, we benefit from that. We benefit from having our heart oriented in that way. So I'd like to share a little bit about uh, unconditional love and metta teaching from Ayakema. So we chanted uh, Ayakema's name this morning as part of the women's lineage. She is a 20th century German Theravadan nun, and she is no nonsense. So I'll tell you, I, I like to, I'd like to share a little bit about her history. Um, she's the, as I said, she's the final name on our, on our women's lineage. 
So she was born Ilse Kussel in Berlin, Germany in 1923 to Jewish parents. In 1938, she was when she was 15, her parents escaped from Germany and traveled to China while plans were being made for her to join 200 other children emigrating to Scotland. Of course, this was at the time when the Nazis were beginning the Holocaust. So her parents fled to China and they sent her to Scotland as a 15-year-old girl. After two years in Scotland, she joined her parents in Shanghai. So with the outbreak of the war, the Japan, Japan conquered Shanghai and the family was moved into the Shanghai ghetto. Um, and so I read a little bit about this and that Shanghai was notable for a long period as the only place in the world that unconditionally offered refuge for Jews escaping from the Nazis. But after the Japanese occupied all of Shanghai in 1941, the Japanese army forced about 23,000 Jewish refugees to, to a restricted area called the Shanghai Ghetto and from 1941 to 45. And it was one of the uh, poorest and most crowded areas of the city. So she moved there, um, was able to move from Scotland uh, to there and be reunited with her parents. And then her father died five days before the war ended. So at 22, she married a man, uh, 17 years her senior, named Johannes, and they moved to uh, in Shanghai. And she had a child, so Ayakema, this German Buddhist nun, was a mother. Uh, she had two children. Uh, eventually, she moved to San Francisco and Los Angeles and San Diego and began practice. She be began to feel feelings of incompleteness and investigated various spiritual paths, um, an interest her husband didn't share, and they eventually had divorced. So she studied philosophy in Mexico. Um, she went to Tassajara Zen Mountain Center. Um, she traveled for a few years uh, seeking and then eventually uh, connected with um, a Burmese monk where she studied meditation. Um, So in 1978, she founded the Wat Buddha Dhamma Forest Monastery in New South Wales, which I think is Australia, right? Um, and um, uh, so she founded it, um, raised the money uh, to found this um, monastery. But she wanted to be a Buddhist nun, and so that led her to China where she studied with Tan Ajahn Singtong for three months. And then she went to Sri Lanka where she met a teacher who eventually ordained her as a nun and gave her the name Ayakema. And she lived until 1997. So a number of her talks are available in all the, all the places you can imagine, YouTube, etc.
So a little about, a little from Ayakema. She says, the four supreme emotions are an essential part of spiritual practice because they are the means to clarify our inner reactions. And the four supreme um, emotions are the four divine abodes. She calls them the supreme emotion. So equanimity, compassion, sympathetic joy, so joy in others, um, and loving kindness. The first one is named metta in Pali and is usually translated as loving kindness. I'm not convinced that, the, that that's the best translation. It's correct, there's nothing wrong with it, but it doesn't have the impact that the word love has. So I'm going to use the word love as a translation for metta and try and show you about the word love and the emotion of love actually is all about. So it's not about what we've been seeing in the movies and on television where they lived happily ever after or not or that it, where it concerns one special person that who has appeared by accident or just fell out of the sky or whatever kind of fanciful ideas the filmmakers happen to have. That's what been, has been designated as love in our society and people have believed it. They haven't really tried to look behind it. So she says, what has been lacking has been a determined effort to see that such fanciful ideas are actually not love at all. The Buddha calls this type of emotion the near enemy of love. The near enemy is love that's clinging, that says you have to do it this way. You have to be this way. You have to regard me in this way. That that kind of clinging love is... Um, causes, creates division and suffering. After we find out the fairy tale does not lend itself to reality, then we have several options. We can become angry. Some people do. We can try again. Most people do. And we can become totally disillusioned and want nothing to do with this kind of emotion because it's only disappointing. We try to close ourselves up so that it doesn't come near us. But underneath all that, there's still that valiant hope. Somebody's going to come around and prove it's possible. Well, needless to say, it's all nonsense. I told you she was no nonsense. And needless to say, it doesn't work. I mean, everybody knows that by now. And yet underlying that knowing that it isn't working, there's still a little bit of hoping, maybe I can do better next time. So we'll have a look at it and see what the Buddha actually meant when he talked about love. And she goes on to say that that's basically what he taught was love. Underlying, she says, so underlying the teaching is always love as the foundation, whether he talked about it or not. Instead of loving kindness, we can call it unconditional love, which is probably a more succinct statement of what it is all about. When we have a look at the kind of emotion that we already have discussed, which is always connected with attachment, we can see quite easily that if that's really love, we are diminished by it. 
if we cultivate the loving quality in our heart, and we all have that quality, and we can all cultivate it, then we can be very happily in the present. If we cultivate the loving quality in our heart, that welcome, that may you be at ease, then we can be very easily in the present. And when we are happily in the present, then we can also happily meditate because we can only meditate in the present. Anything that will help us create an experiential life is of the greatest value. And the best experiential life that we can create for ourselves is the loving quality in the heart. Again, Ayakema, anything that will help us create an experiential life is of the greatest value. And the best experiential life that we can create for ourselves is the loving quality in the heart. And we have to practice it. So what is this? How do we practice it? This unconditional love. The Metta Sutta says, we practice it by radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, continuously, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down. Another translation from Tanasara Bhikkhu says, with goodwill for the entire cosmos, cultivate the heart limitlessly, above, below, and all around, unobstructed, without hostility, and without hate. With goodwill for the entire cosmos. So there's ways that we can practice this, this radiating kindness, this may you be at ease. And we've done a few on the cushion. We've done it on the cushion, the phrases, may you be free from fear and anxiety. May you be at ease. May you be happy. And we can do this, we ignite this flame by recalling someone dear to us who kept us safe and loved. Or we can, if, if that person doesn't come to mind, Maybe it's a pet. Maybe it's that vision, that knowing, that knows what that's like and offering it to ourselves. So on the cushion, the phrases with the breath. So that's one way you can do this practice. Another that we've done is offering love and kindness to the body by paying attention with this stance of welcome to the body, 
Sometimes it's uncomfortable or sore. It's okay. It's not a problem. That's welcome. Sometimes the body aches. Sometimes it's sore. Sometimes it's dull. Sometimes it feels light. It's all welcome. And we can offer this, may you be at ease to the body, especially if we find ourselves, the mind falls into criticism. We can even offer the critic, hey, why don't you be at ease too? <laughs> at ease, sit down, critic. <laughs> so love and kindness to the body, offering love and kindness to those around you. In front, the person in front of you, on the sides, behind you, may you be at ease, may I be at ease. You can simplify the practice. One breath, may you be at ease. One breath, may I be at ease. You can do that for one period in an active way, and then in the next period, you can drop, put the phrases down, and then just practice in the, in the wake of doing that loving-kindness practice. Then just put the phrases down, see what happens. So in the spirit of continuous practice, I encourage you to practice metta slash unconditional love off the cushion. That might be easier to remember. So please take up this, as the sutta says, seated or lying down, walking. So offering it to others, passing the food at the oryoki table, may you be at ease. When you pass someone walking, as we go around the zendo, may you be at ease. Those of you on Zoom, when you're going for a walk, may you be at ease. So just offering this silent, may you be at ease. And if you forget, oh, I passed so-and-so and I didn't do the practice. They're, they've appeared in your heart, offer it then. There's no mistake. So offering it to others, passing the food, passing someone in the hallway, may you be at ease. So what is this unconditional love like? Luckily we have poets to point the way. As Joman shared with us yesterday, the poem by Hafiz. Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look what happens with a love like that. It lights the whole sky. and lights this whole zendo. Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look what happens with a love like that. It lights the whole sky.
Well, if this unconditional love is the natural state of our heart, why do we have to do anything? Why can't we just shine it? Well, this is a very sacred question. It's one that drove our drove Dogen Zenji, the first Japanese ancestor of Soto Zen, on his own spiritual quest. If we're enlightened, whole and complete, lacking nothing from the beginning, why do we have to practice? So, perhaps one reason is that we're not just the sun shining. We are made of the sun. Everything that nourishes us was nourished by the sun. But we're also the earth. The earth where things that grow need nutrients, they need water, rain, a certain kind of care, and they need the sun. The sun that just shines, radiating kindness over the entire world. So please, breath by breath, moment by moment, rest in your practice of presence. That's our cultivation. When our soil gets depleted, too acidic. It needs a certain kind of care, and so we cultivate the garden of our own heart, the flowers in front of our guest house. So please, moment by moment, rest in your practice of presence, welcoming into your guest house whatever shows up. And please return to offer goodwill and friendliness, kind attention to yourself and others, this love without an agenda. Thank you.